We're going through a study in the book of John, if you're visiting with us, and we're in verse number 12 through 20 uh, this morning as we consider uh, this uh, great I am statement found in verse number 12. And so what I want to do is, uh, let me just read, and you follow along as I read down to verse number 20, and then we'll look at it uh, together this morning, uh, Lord willing. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Uh, that's, a, that's a very elaborate way of saying you're lying. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from, where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, and I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Uh, they said this to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would have known my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Heavenly Father, we pray you'd bless the reading of your word, apply it to our hearts this morning uh, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the experts tell us that one, um, three out of four children are scared of the dark. And some of you adults, at least one out of ten of you, have not outgrown that. In fact, uh, this pandemic uh, season has heightened that fear of the dark. And some of you probably reflect that country music song, Every Light in the House is On, when you're by yourself at nighttime, especially here in the woods. Uh, I think, and as they go on in their article on fears and phobias, especially the fear of the dark, it is because of that limited ability to see. It is that um, unableness, not being able to perceive the dangers and the, uh, the other things that may harm you or hurt you. Our imagination runs wild when we cannot see what's in front of our face. Uh, and rightly so. When my children were young, very small, we lived in a house uh, in a neighborhood that had uh, several rather large dogs, uh, pit bulls, and um, very gentle giant beasts, aren't they? Always get a bad rap. One of them was Jet Black, which is not a problem, they, uh, except for the fact that he thought he owned the neighborhood, including our yard and driveway and everything else. And so it was quite eerie when I would drive home at night and uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning with no lights and, and no way to see whether the dog is in between me and my front door. I, I, just to be honest, I didn't like it. And since they didn't put up uh, the dog, I put up a street light right next to my driveway. Uh, and I hope they slept well, but I didn't really care. <laughs> just to be honest with you, I wanted to get through the front door. Uh, of my own house. Uh, needless to say, we moved. 
<laughs> because of that issue in another way. Well, uh, Jesus conveys to us something what we've seen in the Gospel of John, and that is a tension between light and darkness. Really, from the very beginning, Jesus is described as light coming into the world and uh, and overcoming the darkness. The darkness could not overcoming it and setting for us kind of a, a, a battle in between these two forces, which we, we know in a physical sense, uh, the reality, but also in the spiritual sense of light and darkness. Not only do we see that in chapter number one of John's gospel, as he begins just introducing us to Jesus, we see chapter number three, Nicodemus coming in darkness of night, which probably has something to do with his own understanding of God and God's ways, asking Jesus what he must do to have eternal life. And Jesus follows through with that, telling us that light has come into the world and the condemnation is that men love darkness rather than light. So it might not surprise us, or it shouldn't surprise us, that as we come to chapter 8 and verse number 12, that Jesus makes this bold declaration, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Of course, this statement, I am uh, the light of the world, is one of seven that John gives us uh, in his gospel connecting us back with that Old Testament revelation of God himself to Moses in the burning bush. You may recall that and from Sunday school days where Moses is called to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses says, who am I? And God essentially says, it's not who you are, but who I am that will make this uh, come about. In fact, we find God saying, I am who I am. And he said, this is what you'll tell the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God's self-revelation of himself, uh, of his being, of his person wrapped up in that statement, I am. Uh, He is the one who exists. uh, The one who is constant, unchanging. Uh, He is without beginning and without end, without error, without change, without aging or decreasing in value or strength. He is the source of all beings. Uh, Everything finds its existence from him. And yet nothing, uh, he is dependent on nothing outside of himself to be who he is. Uh, He is never hungry nor tired. He is never absent, overwhelmed, overpowered. He is the source of all life and without him all things would cease to be. You can erase God from textbooks and uh, from classrooms and from programs in our education, but the reality is if God ceased to be, everything else would cease to be. He sustains all things. In fact, even in that image of the fire and the burning bush, it's set before him as the bush did not, or the fire did not need the bush to burn. Exodus 3 2 tells us as the fire was. In the bush, it did not consume the bush. Now, this is a great statement in the Old Testament about God. And and so John takes seven of these statements that Jesus made concerning himself, uniting us to the reality of who Jesus is. Uh, He tells us he is the bread of life, or I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd, the resurrection and life. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. In each of these, John wants us to see the dynamic nature of Jesus in his ministry. Uh, He is unlike anyone we've ever seen, unlike anyone we've ever known. Uh, He is the great I am. We've already looked at the first of that, I am the bread of life. And the second one we find in verse number 12 is I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Jesus is that light has come into the world. And now Jesus said in John 1, now Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So I want to set this out for us in just a few headings to help us navigate through this. First, let's look at the setting and then we'll look at the significance of it and then the skeptics. The setting is in the temple. We find that in verse number 20, it is in the court of women or the treasury where both of those things were. It was during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. We've already looked at that. But really, verse number 12 should be attached back to verse number 52 of John 7. During this Feast of Tabernacles, which was a well-loved feast of the Jewish nation, they would come together and celebrate. We looked at the water ceremony uh, already and considered that as Jesus spoke about anyone thirsty, let him come to me. And, and now we see another aspect of this celebration uh, which went on, and that is this lighting of the candles. Now, you and I think lighting of the candles like something you do to smell good. You know, the house smells good, so you light a candle. This was just a little bit like that, but on a larger scale. There were four giant candelabras that were situated in the temple with ladders reaching to the top of them. They contained something of 17, a little over 17 gallons of oil, each of them. The wicks was made from old old priestly garments. They made it more ceremonial and religious, I guess, holy (laughs) event. And every night of this celebration, they would light these candles, would have been like gigantic spotlights shooting into the air. Historians tell us that every, every, um, every outside area, patio, whatever you call those, courtyards throughout Jerusalem was illuminated with the light that went from the temple. It was an enormous event, a great time of celebration. In fact, after they lit these things, men, devout men of piety and good works, they tell us, began dancing and singing and musicians came out with their instruments and uh, and they rejoiced all throughout the night. This was pre-Baptist era for some of you, uh, just to help you out. A great time of celebration. We don't know if this was what was going on when Jesus said these words. We don't know exactly what time of the feast or some suggest maybe at this point they were taking down these large structures when Jesus spoke this. We don't, we don't know, but either way, Jesus capitalizes on his surrounding and the moment. As they were looking at these lights and as they were surrounded by and celebrating uh, with the lights or the lighting of these torches, Jesus Uh, cries out in the midst of them, I am the light of the world. Notice, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so why is that so significant? And what is going on here? 
Well, let me share with you just a few things concerning the significance of this statement. We saw the setting of the celebration and Jesus taking what was going on and the significance of that celebration. And he was, he was pointing the people to himself. In fact, what we find in the Old Testament that it was this light or the lights that represented God himself. The, the manifestation of God with his people. He didn't reveal himself, as you know, in the form of an animal or a, a lion or a tiger or a man or some other image that could be captured in stone or gold or carved. In fact, what we find is God uh, intentionally revealed himself in such a way to where they could not capture it in some sort of image. He revealed himself, he manifested his presence with them in, in the form of a cloud and in the form of a fire by night. It was here how he demonstrated his presence with his people as he delivered them out of Egypt. By daytime it was a cloud to protect them from the scorching sun in the wilderness and by nighttime it was a fire which led them on their way and their journey and literally stood between them and the nation of Egypt. The nation of Israel in their celebration of these lights were being reminded of the Shekinah glory of God in his presence with them. In fact, it was even further seen at Mount Sinai when the cloud descended on the mountain as if it was on fire itself or on the tabernacle and later on the temple. It was a reminder of God with his people. It was the demonstration of him coming and helping and aiding and bringing salvation with him. It was his faithfulness in guiding them along the way. It was this that's behind that celebration, what they remembered as they lit those torches. And it is this, really, what the psalmist captures as he celebrates God's deliverance in his own life in Psalms 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid of? And so here with all of this weight of theology and much more could be said about this as it's strung all throughout the Old Testament, uh, Jesus stands up and says, I am that light. Uh, the reality of God working for his people, bringing salvation and deliverance, I am the proof of that. It is in your midst uh, to the nation of Israel uh, in the moment that he said it. He says, look now and see God's provision. See his salvation, see his presence among you. I am that light of the world. There's two implications of this that I think is worth noting here when he declares to them that he is the light of the world. And one, it speaks of the human condition, and that is that we are in darkness. We'll see that again in chapter number nine is a man born blind, and by the end of that that narrative will find out that the ones who actually have the physical sight are the most blinded in the whole narrative. They cannot see. And of course, blindness can mean physical sight, means you cannot see the, your hand in front of your face. And I was talking to one of the church member this week and 
has trouble seeing and he talked about not being able to see birds. And I said, well, I can understand why. Because he has the loss of his natural sight. But it also refers to that blindness of ignorance. The blindness of of being without understanding or oblivious to what's going on around us. We even use it in that way in, in our world as we, as we say they just don't see what's going on. All the facts are there. They just don't see it. They're just blind as, blind as a bat, whatever that's supposed to mean. Or maybe the other side of that, when we say someone has been enlightened, that's a, a popular word in our day. I, I, I've, be, I've been educated, I've been enlightened to, to, to what goes on, which implies that I've come to this knowledge, or this understanding, this perception about life or whatever it is that we're talking about. And what the Bible says that humanity, uh, humanity is in a situation of not knowing, not understanding We're blind, spiritually born, spiritually blind. And let me offer a few areas. And by saying that, I want to say this. I'm not talking about math or science or or the law of physics or all that other stuff like that. But I am talking about some of the most significant and important things in life that we could ever consider. In fact, the greatest of these is God himself. He has revealed himself through creation. We know that in Romans 1 and many other places. Psalms tells us that. But that truth and that light of him, the knowledge of God, the understanding of God, the Bible says, has been distorted. And some of you, and we could all rightly say amen to that because we see the outcome of that. It's been suppressed in some way or another. And the fact is that we worship at a thousand different altars around the world. And in all of these, we confess two things. One, our need of the divinity, our need of God, and our ignorance of him. And we do that at the very same time. In fact, Tozer is right, and I've quoted him before on this, because it is, it is so true and so significant in the day we live in and that is no society ever rises above its perception of God we are those who are continually learning and continually growing and continually taking in but we never get to the right answer in fact what you find is we're flooded with a thousand wrong answers and the outworking of that is manifested in in the way we live and the way we treat one another. If it's true that the most important thing about us is our knowledge of God, then it is also true that the reality that we have that knowledge wrong or or distorted uh, has an impact on everything we touch. In fact, I would say it like this that The light of our theology, which simply means our understanding of God, the light of our theology, good or bad, correct or skewed, orthodox or heretical, God or no God, sheds its rays on every other perception of life. Would you agree with that? What we perceive God to be, who we perceive Him to be, or whether we perceive Him to be at all, influences, impacts, paints, sheds its rays on everything else we perceive to be true about us and the world around us. 
In fact, Paul laments this at the Corinthian church, reminding how we have continually come up wrong in his first letter to them, as he says, where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe or where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Again, going back to all the pursuit that we have given ourselves to and all the reality and the reality of all the wrong answers we've come up with, we are blinded to the reality of God. And because we're blinded to the reality of God, we're blinded to the reality of ourselves. Surely we can understand that our purpose and meaning is lost because we have disconnected it from the the truthfulness, from the, the, the reality that we've been created in the image of God. And so if that image is distorted or if it's severed from, from, from us in, in some meaningful way, then, then the outworking of our purpose, uh, well, it's futile. We keep pursuing it and, and going after it, but we never find it. We never grasp it. It's like smoke and vapor, Ecclesiastes tells us. In fact, what we find in our society is that we've traded the significance of the eternal weight of our souls for the temporary pleasures which we pursue now. And all of this is because we cannot see. We're so nearsighted that we cannot see not just tomorrow, but we cannot see eternity. We pursue the pleasures or our pleasures in gratification at the expense of our neighbor's. We fill ourselves with our own counsel. We become our own best advisors. And of course, you know this is foolish, right? And if we ask outside of ourselves, we tend to ask those people who tell us what we would tell ourselves. And how foolish to add to that, we boast of our independence while we're blinded to the fact of the thousand ways God continues to sustain us and His grace is operative in our lives, even up to this point. I think it could be said that we are drunk on the thought of ourselves. And because we're that way, we have decided every barrier in our life, every authority, even the natural barriers which God has designed in us and in, in creating us must be submissive to our own wills. C.S. Lewis, in a, uh, in a book on the weight of glory, has a quote that's, that really captures this for us, reminding us that it is a strange time and a strange place to live in. And I quote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when an infinite joy is offered us. And like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And the reason we live this way is because we are blinded to the reality of God. We are we're blinded to the reality of ourselves. And I would just say to you young people here, to every one of us here, that you have to fight against the world's definition of who you are or who you could be. To see yourself through the lens of God's light. 
I think that's something of what Jesus is trying to tell us here when he says, I am the light of the world. That not only is that that where we find who God is, but in that we find ourselves in finding him. How can we do that? Well, it starts with coming to Jesus and walking in the light of his word. So the implication of the blindness or the human condition, but, but also the joy, or the other implication is God has not left us in the dark. Notice again, verse number 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. God has not left us groping in the dark. Some of you have played hide and seek. How many of you have done that in your childhood? How many of you have been children at some point in your life? <laughs> Should ask that first before I ask the next question. How many of you played hide and seek? Raise your hand. Get some exercise this morning. Look at that. How many of you ever played hide and seek in the dark with the lights off? That's dangerous business, isn't it, friend? <laughs> it's a futile effort. Start listening for sounds. Is that someone breathing or... You know, making noises and all that other stuff. And it could be that we think that we're doing that when we're trying to look for God. And honestly, if we didn't have God's initiative, if God didn't step into space and time, that's exactly what we would be doing. We would be in the futile cycle of paganism which is simply us trying to, there must be a God out there, so let's just look around in the dark and see what we find. But what Jesus is telling us and what the Word of God is telling us is God did not leave us to guess, to look and search in such a fashion. He has spoken to us. He has sent His light into the world. He has made His glory, His divine glory, visible and knowable to us. Not in abstract thought, but in a person. Abstract thoughts are facts that can be known, but a person is one we can have a relationship with. And so Jesus is saying to these people, as he says to us, that that he is the light of the world. He is the one that the Father has sent into the world to make God known. To say it another way, you don't have to go through this life and wondering who God is. You don't have to make up and guess at it. We, we are called and told to turn and look to Jesus and in His face and in His work of redemption and in His Word. We are given the reality of who God is. He has come to make Him known, not only make Him known, but bring us in relationship, close proximity to Himself and relationship to the Father. In this light, he has restored our purpose. In this life, he is promising that life is found. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. And just like in the daytime, when you walk, you, you walk clearly and safely. And you walk with understanding and wisdom because you see that is the very thing Jesus offers to us. Notice the command in verse number 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, Jesus could have said, whoever believes in me. He says that often in the Gospel of John. Actually, the whole purpose of the Gospel of John is to believe in him. Isn't that correct? Well, if you didn't know that, that is 
it's the secret to the book. He tells you at the end of it. You have to read all the way through to get there. So he, said, he could have said, whoever believes in me will have this light. That would be true. Or he could say, whoever receives me. He mentions that several times in the Gospel of John. Whoever receives him can have this light. But he says, whoever follows me. Isn't that remarkable? It's remarkable because you see a contrast. Because he will reveal to them that he is going to a place that they cannot come. Look at verse 21. And he said to them, speaking of the, the, the skeptics, the scribes and Pharisees, I'm going away, you will seek me, and you will die in your sins where I'm going. You cannot come. Verse number 24, or verse 23, You are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, he, it's literally I am, he's added for for us who need that extra addition to understand it, you will die in your sins. Really, he describes the Christian life as one of a progressive movement to where he is. In fact, that's the climax, isn't it? When you get to the uh, that great uh, upper room discourse, where I am, I pray that you may come, that you will follow me. I want to say it reminds you and I this morning that faith is more than a religious hope so. It's more than just an emotional feeling out of some dramatic sermon or some dramatic presentation. It's not just simply the assent to some uh, random facts that never capture us. In fact, it is a trust, a deep conviction, a settled belief in God and His promises. It's looking at the gospel uh, through the lens of not only the facts that Jesus died for sin, but with the, the reality or the trust or the conviction that he died for my sins. It is that, that peace that we have being reminded on the day of judgment as that we stand before God that our only hope in life and death is Christ and that is the only hope we need. That is what faith in Jesus is. It is a following Him. A connected to Him. It is, I don't know where I'm going, but wherever He's going, kind of reality. And that is the call of disciples, isn't it? Not only to assent to something that is true, but to assent to it in a way to where you're following after Him. In one way it is believing one way it is receiving, but in another way it is following. That's a good question we could ask ourselves, isn't it? Are you following Christ? Is your life marked by following Him, going where He's going? Are you settled on who He is and what He's done for you? What about what He's doing in your life now? In Numbers, it reminds us that the children of Israel were in a their wilderness wandering, and as they rested, they rested and they, they moved camp from place to place, you know, kind of like how they did that. But they did it according to the, the dictate of God himself. This cloud or this light, this fire on the tabernacle, and, and as it lifted up off that tabernacle, they knew it's time to pack up and move on. 
But as long as that manifestation of God's presence was settled there on the tabernacle, they remained in place. And it it just reminds us that that's exactly what we're doing now. We keep our eyes on Christ, our focus on Him and His Word, and He leads us along all the way home. All the way home. John reminds us that this is manifested in the Christian's life by not only keeping our eyes on him, but through his word, he leads us. If my word abides in you, then, then you're, you're, you're abiding in me. And, and of course, Psalms 119, 105, where he says his word is both a lamp and a light for our journey. Dear believer, God has given us and illuminated our steps to make it home through his word. Trust it, lean into it, believe it. <clears throat> and claim it. I want you to notice, thirdly, the skeptical response uh, to all of this. As he is saying to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. Verse number 13, rather comical in some ways, but, but pitiful in, on a many other levels. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. Now, if we broke this down in childish terms, they would be saying liar, liar, pants on fire. That's what they would be saying. This is their more sophisticated way of going about it. Well, they're saying, you say whatever you want to say about yourself, Jesus. Doesn't make it so. Uh, we don't believe you. You're just saying what you want to say, putting all this focus on you. You're narcissistic or whatever you are. They, they look and they hear and, and they've rejected his word and his teaching. But Jesus says, you not only rejected my word and my teaching, but you've rejected my father's witness about me. Notice Jesus rebuttaling here. Verse number 14, I know where I came from, where I'm going, but you do not know where I've come from and where I'm going. Well, they say, he's saying, you're just, you're earthly. You know nothing about heaven. You know nothing about, about God's plan, his redemptive plan. You know nothing about eternity and inheritance and paradise. Uh, you are earthly. That's all that you are. You, you know nothing. And the reason they know nothing or manifested that they know nothing because they, they have not received his word. Notice he says, verse number 16, my judgment is true. It is not I alone who judge, but I am the father who sent me. Verse number 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. And basically he's saying to them, you don't know either one of us. And I've said this often and I think because the Bible makes such a big deal about this, you can never know God. You will never know the father. Claim any right or promise from the father without knowing the son. Jesus makes that very clear in Matthew chapter 11. And so if you are confused about who Jesus is or you have not accepted him or you're still skeptical about Christ, uh, that, that the only way to truly know the Father is through knowing the Son. That's what he says in Matthew 11. He is the only one that truly knows the Father. And the Father is revealed to those whom Jesus chooses to reveal him. And what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's exposing them... Uh, for their skepticism, for their blindness, 
for their sinfulness, for their unbelief, the very thing that their fathers was forbidden to enter into the uh, uh, promised land for, they are manifesting themselves, and that is unbelief. Hebrew writer reminds us that the promises was given to them, but they did not receive the word by faith. And here these, these men are showing the same thing. It happens in our day as well, doesn't it? hear the word of God and they meet that word and they see the evidence of God or the hand of God moving and working and they meet that with, with unbelief. I was reading an article concerning unsolvable problems, problems with no solutions. It's quite interesting. It begins with mathematical problems, which was not very interesting for me. I did read that part just so I could say I read it, stretch my mind and see my limitations. Spoke about some other problems that have no solution in our modern day in life. And they talked about cancer, how that the only way to avoid cancer ultimately, because cancer cells never decay, is to die of something else first. Very encouraging article I was reading. Right after that. Right on the list of cancer that cannot be cured or cancer that will not ultimately be done away with is willful ignorance. Let me just quote for you what they say in the article because it just really captures it and you're thinking, how obvious is it? Willful ignorance, they said, and before they get to this section I'm quoting you, they said the world will never be, will never be uh, rid of stupid people. Um, it's a secular article, so I didn't say I agree with everything they said. They said willful ignorance, therefore, could be the greatest unsolvable problem of all time. Ultimately, willful ignorance is just one of the ugly manifestations of pride, which many Christians consider the truly original sin. The article goes on to talk about nobody likes to admit being wrong. The desire is so intense that even when given conclusive evidence to the contrary, some people double down on their beliefs, a phenomena known as the backfire effect. <laughs> I think they got it right. Jesus' teaching is demonstration of power among them the healing, all that he did, the witness of the Old Testament and all the promises God had given to them, everything God laid in place. And as it's presented before them, they say, you're lying. You're not him. And Jesus says, the reason that you're saying this is because you're blind. And you loved your sin more than dark. You loved your sin more than the light. So you remain in the darkness. Paul tells us something else is going on more than just our prejudice or preferences. He says this is spiritual. It's spiritual in nature, Second Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Having eyes and cannot see. You know, let me just try to bring this to the conclusion of a really important question to answer, and that is, how do we overcome it? 
The truth is humanity in itself is born with a spiritual blindness and we have the distortion of God, a recreation of him, a distortion of self and everything else that goes with it. And if there's a spiritual warfare of, of, of being kept in that darkness that is going on, how is it overcome? Well, Paul continues in Second Corinthians by giving us the answer. He said it's the powerful work of God in us. Notice, let me read for you, 2 Corinthians 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, in one sense, it is through what we proclaim. Jesus the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory of Christ, and, and Him as Lord. And through that gospel message, through the declaration of who He is and what He did, and, and all that surrounds us of who Jesus is, Paul is saying God uses that to illuminate, to light up the mind and the eyes and the affections so that we may see the beauty and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And church, I need not tell you this, but I will since we're here at this point. We need not give up the very thing God uses to bring people into the light. There is no substitute for the gospel. There is no substitute for the very power of God unto salvation. Not one among many things God uses, but it is the very thing God uses to bring people to himself. But there's also a dramatic language used in that verse, and that is the tone of that creation account where God says, let there be light. And some of you may recall in your own testimony, in your own conversion, how God turned the lights on. Uh, Just all made sense. And maybe you're here this morning and God is doing that very thing. Up to this point, any understanding or care about God and that whole business about him and us uh, always at the at the at the outer edge of our concern and and our thoughts but maybe even this morning God has brought it center focus reminding you the importance of your eternal soul did you miss what he said to the people you're not following me so you will not be where i am and the, and the other side of that consequence in this passage is that you will die in your sins. You will not only die in your sins, but you will be, you will be committed to outer darkness for eternity, the Bible says. The darkness which you love, the darkness which you've hidden in from God will be the very thing that will clothe you for eternity. And yet, even this morning, maybe God is bringing that to your mind and your attention And I just want to ask you, will you follow Christ? Will you set aside your wisdom and your plans and and what the world is saying about sin and salvation and God? Will you set all those things aside and come to Jesus and find the light which he offers along with its safety and its life that it promises to give to you? You can do that right where you're at. The Bible says, they that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I would encourage you, if that's you, 
and you've got questions you want answered, speak to somebody you came with. Speak to a parent or a friend or, or myself or one of the other elders here at the church and, and love to share the gospel and answer those questions so that you might know who Jesus is more fully. And again, church, as we come to see Jesus as the light in the world, his light will not only overcome darkness. What a beauty that is. But in such a fashion, such a dramatic fashion, that the new heavens and new earth will be lit up by himself and his presence. There'll be no sun or moon. No need of it, the Bible says. That is where we're headed but for this dark time we live in, church, he has, he has worked in us and given us that light so that you and I could be a light to this community that we're in and to the places that you're going and have come from. We've been entrusted with not only coming to the light, walking in the light, but sharing and shedding that light to the world around us. And really it is done by following him, isn't it? As we follow God and follow his word and follow his ways, we bear witness to the goodness of God, the glory of Christ, and the gospel hope of eternal life. Bow with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We gather together. Thank you for your great and many blessings. Lord, I thank you for each one here this morning that you would stir in their hearts, remind them that great desire to know you, to know Christ, Paul says, was his chief ambition and aim in Philippians 3. Oh, that I may know him. And Lord, I pray that would be each of our, each of our desires and burdens, pursuits. That knowing him and coming to him and walking in fellowship with him and you, uh, we, we learn how to navigate this world that we live in. And not only for ourselves and for our own good, but for the good of those around us. We display Christ more fully and truly and gloriously. Pray that we would do that as a church, as believers from all over the place gather here this morning. I pray that you would remind us that you have left us here to be a light in a dark world. Father, I pray for those here this morning that are wayward, that are not following as closely as they ought to be, that you would even bring them back in stride and in step with our Savior. And Lord, those who don't know you, God, would they come. In Jesus' name, amen.